While the topic of birth control is related to the broader topic of marriage, that's what we're in right now with the commandment of thou shalt not commit adultery. So he's, Grudem is covering a whole lot of area with this. Uh, this is a subject every married couple has to face at some point, and modern society presents a, a very wide variety of viewpoints on it. On the one hand, many in modern society find no moral problems at all with, with birth control. They use condoms, birth control pills. That's very common in order to avoid uh, unwanted pregnancy. On the other hand, though, the Roman Catholic Church, they're very strict on this. They, they consider all forms of birth control to be morally wrong, except periodically abstaining from intercourse during a woman's fertile period each month, which is a, a natural as opposed to an artificial means of birth control. So actually, let me just read to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is what it says. This is why, you know, back in the day, and even today, it's still, like Catholics have large families, right? So unity, indissolubility, and openness to fertility are essential to marriage. The refusal of fertility turns married life away from its supreme gift, the child. It is necessary that each and every marriage act remain ordered, per se, to the procreation of human life. Every action which proposes to render procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. Sacred scripture and the church's traditional practice see in large families a sign of God's blessing and the parents' generosity. Now, among evangelical Protestants, sort of very few go down that road um, in imposing all forms of artificial birth control. But most believe that birth control is a personal decision for each family and that couples should be free to decide how many children they have. What do you think? What does the Bible actually teach on this subject? There was no questions at all, no answers, no interaction whatsoever last week with the masturbation. So I'm hoping more with this week's lesson, there'll be some interaction. So what does the Bible teach about birth control? That is the subject because of the subject matter. I mean, almost all of this lesson is going to pertain to couples who are married and who are still able to have children. Right? And we'll address the difficult question of infertility uh, in a later session. We're looking actually at adoption IVF next week. So any questions, comments before we get going? All right. So if you look at your handout, A, Scripture views children not as a burden, but as a great blessing. Some in contemporary society view children mostly as a burden, a huge expense, and an inconceivable inconvenience that interferes with the happiness of a married couple. From time to time, uh, there are news stories that make the task of raising children seem frightfully expensive. I did some research. In Canada, it costs $250,000 to raise a child to the age of 18. That doesn't include university. So, a quarter of a million bucks. But the Bible does not view raising children as a burden or as something that is financially or emotionally impossible to do. It consistently views children as a blessing from God. Uh, the first command, actually, that God ever gave to human beings was a mandate to bear children. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Another pa- other passages in the Old Testament continue promoting a positive view of children, even after Adam and Eve sinned. So you can think of uh, Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Um, and actually, there's a movement. It's, it's very... Uh, yeah, it's, it's called, like, it's like the quiver 
association kind of thing where it's actually they're really promoting it's an evangelical association where it's like birth control is bad having lots of children is good and it's called like it's like the quiver foundation that sort of thing comes from that text or psalm 128 three to four (laughs) your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house your children will be like olive shoots around your table behold thus shall the man be blessed who fears the lord lots of kids in the New Testament, Jesus demonstrated a remarkably positive attitude toward children. This is Mark nineteen thirteen. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. In addition, Paul's directions to Timothy about how he should teach churches included this statement about widows. He said, 1 Timothy 5.14, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And these passages indicate that the first question couples should ask themselves when considering birth control is this. Here's the first question. Do we agree in our hearts with the Bible's positive view of children as being a blessing from God? Do we think that's right? Or do we agree with sort of a modern, secular view that children are an inconvenience, children are a burden. Good conversation to have. These questions are important because the Bible is unquestionably pro-child in its perspective. The scriptural emphasis on children as a blessing leads me to think that married couples should, in almost all cases, plan to have children sometime in their marriages. Now, I went into this and tongs back in the day. Remember that sermon series we did on parenting and stuff, but also parenting desires in conflict. And uh, I'll just, just read you the sermon outline from that sheet, but you can hear this online though. I said, there is no biblical law that says married couples must have children. Though a couple's desire not to have children is often linked to heart desires and fears, which the gospel trumps. Heart motivation questions to consider and discuss as a couple. Why don't we want children? More money? More house? More career? Is it related to fear? I'll be a bad dad. I'm not an expert. Bad theology? We can serve God better without kids. A lack of eternal perspective? I've got my bucket list. I will be walking the beaches of New Zealand every year, and if the kids are there, they can't do that. So... However, Scripture also recognizes that sometimes children can be a cause of great sorrow for their parents. Think of Absalom, uh, the son of David. Uh, The parable of the prodigal son tells about the son who caused immense grief to his father. And some verses from Proverbs show that it can be very difficult. There's an awareness. There's tragedy sometimes involving rebellious kids. Uh, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Nevertheless, all those verses, I think, show the exception to the rule. Overall, the Bible is very, very positive towards children. And uh, questions about that? Comments? I can go into full lecture mode. It's okay. Nothing, nothing super controversial. Your silence means you agree with everything I'm saying, right? That's what it means. Excellent. We're all going to have quiverfuls of kids. All right. Objection is on B. The world already has too many people. I object to this idea of kids willy-nilly. One objection that may be brought against this positive biblical perspective on having kids is the idea that the world already has too many people. Someone might argue that in the time of the Bible, there were not very many people on the earth. It was not densely populated. 
And, uh, and it, was, it made sense. They should be encouraged. Have lots of kids. But today, the world already has too many people. It's overpopulated. And there's this great danger. I would respond by saying the world is far from being overpopulated. Uh, the pattern throughout all nations of the world is that as prosperity increases in a nation, people have fewer and fewer kids. This is acutely evident now in several countries, most notably Canada, Germany, Hungary, Italy, Japan, Russia, South Korea, where people have had so few children in recent decades that the population is stable or declining, with fertility rates down to as little as 1.5 children per woman. You need 2.1 to keep the population steady. Um, as of 2022, the population of the world is 8 billion. <clears throat> Models done after 2004 show the world population stabilizing probably around 10.1 billion by 2100 because of declining fertility rates. Uh, industrialized, modern cultures and societies in the world today, we're not reproducing at a rate that actually can keep the population growth steady. It's, it's going to be declining. And uh, um, you, you see this in countries all over the world. So, in fact, uh, many of the most densely populated areas of the world are also the most prosperous, such as the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Germany, and Japan. The population density of Massachusetts today is 871 people per square mile. What do you think the population density of China is? It's 375 people per square mile. So Massachusetts is way more dense in that sense. Uh, and it's not that much under India, which is 1,100 people per square mile. Uh, in general, though, I mean, the United States is a more pleasant place to live. It has a higher standard of living than both those countries. The difference, though, is increased prosperity, which enables people to have better living conditions. So it's not the population density that makes things good or bad in that sense. Neither is it true that the billions of people on the earth are rapidly depleting the earth as resources so that we will soon have widespread shortages of various essential resources. We're going to discuss this later in the series. That's a big topic. I mean, ecology is an ethical question we have to deal with, so that comes down the road, though. I just want to, I just want to say here that an infinitely wise God created, for us, created us an earth that was very good, and he formed it to be inhabited. So... Questions about that that don't get directly linked to ecology and what we should do with our stewardship of that. Okay. C, birth control for a limited time is morally permissible. While I believe that in almost all circumstances, married couples should plan to have children sometime, this does not mean they have a moral obligation to have as many children as they are physically capable of having. You see that distinction? The existence of modern birth control methods gives many options for deciding when to have children and how many children to have. For example, a newly married couple might not decide to have children for the first few years of their marriage. That's very common in Canada until maybe the educational process is complete or they have more financial stability. In such a case, deciding to postpone having children may be a wise and morally good choice. After a couple has had some kids, one or both spouses will often have the sense that uh, we should not have any more children. Perhaps because we cannot do a good job of raising more children. This can be a morally good and wise decision. Because deciding to have more children means taking on other weighty responsibilities. 
And God wants us to be faithful in that responsibility. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The specific context that verse is dealing with is the provision and support of widows. But the expression, members of his household, would certainly include one's own children, too. Regarding this passage, I think John Feinberg and Paul Feinberg are correct when they say that to provide for members of his household, a person should provide for financial, physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. It's not just, here's a hunk of cash I'm providing by doing my duty now. It's actually, you need to provide for the finances, the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. Therefore, it is appropriate for couples to consider whether they are reasonably able to do that with more children than they already have. In addition, Jesus gives us a principle that pertains to undertaking obligations generally. And I think it'd be applied here in Luke 14. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. The application of birth control is that it seems wise for couples to realistically count the cost and see whether they have enough physical and emotional resources and reasonable expectation of financial resources as well to raise more children. Uh, However, it also must be said that many modern families with four or five or even more children often find that the Lord gives them the strength and the resources for raising their children well in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Just the, the broader consideration for all this here is that all of life consists in deciding not to do some good things in order that we can do other, other good things. You have to, you have to make a choice. Uh, there are many more good things in the world to do than we can possibly achieve even in many lifetimes. In a moment, we're going to consider arguments for an alternative perspective, namely that birth control is always wrong for Christian couples. But we'll come to that in a second. But any questions about that part? Yep? Do you think, like, if a couple, like, one... Uh, the husband of the wife is like significantly disabled in some way, but they're still able to have kids. But like, it would be very difficult because the able spouse is parent to the disabled spouse. Do you think um, that kind of fits into the category of not being able to care for any children well versus like kind of too many children well? I guess it would depend on the context of like that case by case basis of what the maybe the disability would be, perhaps. I could, I could see it being that way, though. I could also see it being, we could, we could manage one, or we can, have, <clears throat> we can have care as well, coming in and helping us out, or our family lives next door. We're in a, a culture where mom and grandma live with us anyway, so it's, like, it's not going to be a big deal in that way. So it could, it could be that, but also it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think I'd fall about the same yeah. place. Like, you should try to want to have kids and see if you can make that happen, but if it seems like you're not going to be able to care well, then yeah. that's okay. Yeah. And, I'm, and it, we can be approaching this maybe too from a Canadian perspective. Like I just mentioned, like in, in a lot of cultures where it's like the whole family's there and everyone pitches in and you know, we're living in we're a siloed uh, husband, wife, kid, nuclear family in that sense. It's not always that way. So in that kind of context, it can look different. Even as you have our kids or no kids, 
the marriage must <laughs> if you bring a kid into the marriage, it might it might impact the marriage to the point that it would be detrimental to the gospel witness of it. But it's a pretty rare situation to get things like that. I mean, this, I mean, just riffing off that, obviously, this usually happens with older married couples, but, you know, somebody gets Alzheimer's, and it's like the person quits their job, and you're actually, you're helping out your wife or your husband full-time with that. It's a full-time job. Like, there's, uh, so that, in that kind of sense, too, where there's a major impairment, perhaps, and it's like, this isn't going to work, you know? I can see that. It's a tough call, but you want to preserve the marriage. D, morally acceptable and morally unacceptable methods of birth control. Various methods of birth control prevent the husband's sperm from fertilizing the wife's ovum or egg, and thus they do not destroy any new human life. Right? So, I mean, I, 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 keep, <laughs> I keep thinking about that. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I don't necessarily recommend it, but Monty Python's uh, The Meaning of Life. You know, every sperm is sacred. There's that song. And then they have so many kids, they have to sell them off for scientific experiments because they're Catholic. Right? There's like 50,000 kids in this home. But that's, that, that, like, there's that, that song. Like, every sperm is sacred in that way. It's kind of funny. It's a funny song. But we would not actually see that as being the case. It's actually it's when the sperm and the egg combine and there's fertilization. That's when life begins. That's, that's what's sacred, not the sperm itself or just the egg by itself. That's very important. You know, it's, it's basic biology 101, but that is something that... Um, I will be presuming as we, as we go along here, assuming. Uh, therefore, they are morally acceptable means of birth control. You can actually stop that fertilization process from happening. According to the Life Issues Institute, this would include the use of a condom, diaphragm, a sponge, spermicide, and most birth control pills. The older rhythm method, now superseded by natural family planning called NFP, uh, also falls into this category. Um, in addition, if a couple has reached the decision not to have any more children for their lifetimes, uh, a vasectomy for the man or a tubal ligation for the women, having her tubes tied, commonly said, uh, that would also be morally acceptable. It's morally acceptable to do both those things. On the other hand, some methods of birth control allow conception to occur and then cause the death of the newly conceived child. As I argued in our earlier lesson on abortion, Scripture indicates that we should consider the unborn child to be a human person from the moment of conception. This is also evident from the fact that when the husband's sperm fertilizes the wife's ovum, a new living creature with its own distinct DNA begins to form as cells divide and multiply. Birth control methods that would cause the death of this newly conceived child, methods known as abortifacients including the morning-after pill, RU486, and ELA-1. Uh, uh, I, would, I would include that. Also, uh, an IUD, intrauterine device, should also be considered an abortifacient. This medical device allows a woman's egg to be fertilized by a man's sperm, but prevents the resulting embryo from being implanted in the mother's womb. Preventing an embryo from implanting effectively kills the embryo, and thus is an abortion. Therefore, such a means of birth control is not morally acceptable on biblical grounds. And we'll be talking about modern reproductive technology uh, in the next lesson, next week, Lord willing. Questions about that before we get to E, the alternative viewpoint. Is everyone on the same page? I just just want to make sure you're on the same page when it comes to what I was saying about the sperm and the egg 
individually does not represent a human life. That's got to be understood. Okay? No questions? E. An alternative viewpoint. All birth control is wrong. Or all artificial birth control is wrong. So this is what I'm not arguing for this. But it's out there. In recent decades, a natural family planning movement has gained influence among evangelical Christians. Such Christians oppose birth control or most methods of birth control. They support their view with at least the following three arguments. Children are a blessing. Therefore, we should have many children. Secondly, we should trust God to decide how many children we should have. Three, birth control is unnatural. That's basically the argument. So let's look at each of those in turn, okay? <clears throat> Maybe I can throw it out there. You can kind of see, oh, how would I do on the fly with actually coming up against that kind of argument? Children are a blessing. Therefore, we should have many children. Mary Pride is an influential evangelical opponent of birth control. She's part of that quiver organization as well. Uh, she, full quiver. She makes the following argument. The two methods Christians use to plan their families, spacing and limiting family size, both have one thing in common. They make a cutoff point on how many blessings a family is willing to accept. This is her terminology. There's a cutoff point on how many blessings a family is willing to accept. Can anyone find, quote, uh, one single verse, one single Bible verse that says Christians should refuse God's blessings? Children are an unqualified blessing according to the Bible, end quote. All right, so you're talking to Mary Pride in the coffee shop. That's what she says. How do you respond? Do you agree? That's possible. I don't want to dismiss that, but what kind of line would you go across with that? It's kind of tricky. I've had time to look at this, too, so I'm not sure how well I would do. <laughs> I've actually never had... No, I actually I have had these kinds of conversations. I'm not sure... That's good, yes, for sure. Yeah. I would also want to focus. <laughs> 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 well, just because something's great doesn't mean we have to just have unlimited of that's, that's it precisely, I think. I was thinking food. Yeah, well, that's okay. You just, you, I think you nailed it, Jill. This is great. So, my response to this argument is that it is based on reasoning that it's mistaken and it's unbiblical. The reasoning as base is this. If something is good, if something's a blessing, then we should seek to absolutely maximize it. Uh, the problem with this reasoning is that there are many good things in life, there are many blessings from God, and we cannot possibly maximize them all. Sleep is a blessing from God. It's a good thing, but God does not require us to get as much sleep as we possibly can. And there's actually warnings in Proverbs about sleeping too much. Food is a good thing. It's a blessing from God, but it would be wrong to eat all that we possibly can. Work is also a blessing from God, but that does not mean we're required to work as much as we possibly can. The same thing could be said of physical exercise, giving to the poor, evangelism, worship, or Bible study. Instead of the false principle, if something is good, you should seek to maximize it. That's false. Instead, God requires us to pray and exercise mature wisdom in seeking to know how to allocate the limited time we have among the various good activities available to us in this life. Such mistaken reasoning as Mary Pride offers is not limited to opponents of birth control. Often in Christian circles, one hears exhortations of this type. Since activity XYZ is good, you should do more of activity XYZ. 
where activity XYZ is teaching children in Sunday school, ministering to the poor, taking part in evangelistic campaigns, or having more children. But this exhortation fails to take into account God's individual callings on different people. God may be calling a person to focus more on activity ABC or activity DEF instead of activity XYZ. Paul's direction is better. 1 Corinthians 7, remember our Bloom Where You're Planted kind of series? Uh, Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to them. He's called them to, to, in which God has called them. And this is my rule in all the churches. Uh, The life the Lord has assigned to each person is best determined by prayerful, wise consideration of one's own gifts, one's own callings from God. And that might not include a calling for a married couple to raise as many children as they can possibly conceive. Allowing people to have freedom to follow their own individual callings from God means that people will make many different decisions about which, which good activities to emphasize. Some will have many children, while others will have fewer children and will devote more time to different ministries and other worthwhile ministries, activities. Allowing for such freedom respects the diversity of callings within the church. There are many parts, yet one body. So there, now you're equipped. You can deal with the merry prize of the world in one fell swoop. That's her first argument, though. The second one, we should trust God to decide how many children we should have. So let me just kind of phrase this and see how you would do it for rebuttal. There is, this is a quote, there is an alternative to scheming and plotting how many babies to have and when to have them. It can be summed up in three little words, trust and obey. If God is willing to plan my family for me, then why should I muddle up his plan with my ideas? Rebuttal. <laughs> Alex. It nullifies the idea of human responsibility. It's a, Precisely. It's, it's the same as let go, let God. Mm. Yep. It's inconsistent with the Bible's yeah. God is sovereign, but we are also responsible. This argument against birth control fails to recognize that God's sovereignty does not normally override the ordinary functioning of the natural world that he has created. We do not say to a farmer, trust God's sovereignty regarding how many weeds will grow in your field. If he did nothing to overcome the weeds, they would soon overgrow his field. The important concept to remember here is that God does not usually, in his sovereignty, override the natural, ordinary consequences of human actions. If a couple decides that they will have sex often and trust God, to decide how many children they will have, the answer is that God has already decided through the way he has ordered the natural world and our physical bodies that they will have many children, assuming the couple is in good reproductive health. To say that they are trusting God for how many children they will have is something like throwing wildflower seeds on their backyard once a week for a year and then saying, we are trusting God to decide how many flowers will grow in our backyard. If seeds are repeatedly thrown on fertile ground, flowers will bloom. The broader principle is that God wants us to trust him regarding his commands and his promises that he has given to us in Scripture. But there is nothing in Scripture that tells us to avoid using birth control and then to trust him for how many children we will have. We are not authorized to trust him for things that he has not promised, that he has not commanded. Daniel Durani wisely analyzes the appeal to trusting in God's sovereignty that is made by Christians who oppose birth control. He writes this, The no birth control movement says family planning asserts God's sovereignty by banning children who might have existed. This misunderstands the way God works with human agents and other secondary means, such as the weather. 
If I say family planning interferes with God's sovereignty, I might as well argue that I should not plan my vacation or my next meal or where I live, lest I interfere with God's plan. This concept of God's sovereignty could justify every kind of laziness and inaction, including refusal of medical care. It also assumes what is to be proved, that God wants the couple to have more children and wants them to cooperate through unprotected intercourse. But perhaps God has not planned more children for the couple and wants them to cooperate by using birth control. Ignorance of God's will never excuses us from the honest work of discerning and planning. So we can take that and apply it to many, many areas of life. It's a good principle. Third, the last sort of thing that she would argue, birth control is unnatural. This argument is often the unstated assumption behind many objections to birth control. Since sex without birth control is natural, and since this natural process often leads to more babies... Having more babies is morally right. Or it's God's will for us, because it's natural. In response to this argument, we must reply that God does not command us to simply follow what is natural, but rather to follow his commands in Scripture. The Bible often directs us on a course that differs from the course of nature. With respect to sexual intercourse itself, God does not command us to do what is natural. Rather, he commands us to limit sex to a married relationship rather than following our natural instincts, which would sometimes lead us to have sex with a number of different people, even outside of marriage. It is important to keep in mind that God changed the order of the natural world at the time of the fall, and this means that our highest ideal is not simply to let untouched nature take its course. What a bad idea. I saw a cartoon once where the mother's telling the little boy, it's like, just follow your heart. Do whatever your heart says. And the heart's like, sin. (laughs) That's what it is here. And Adam and Eve sinned. After Adam and Eve sinned, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth for you. Genesis 3, 17 to 18. Suddenly life in the natural world becomes more difficult and painful. When we couple this alteration that God imposed on the natural world with God's command to subdue the earth, Genesis 1, it is right to conclude that we should often take active steps to change or even overcome the course of untouched nature. This applies not only to the plants of the field, but also to our physical bodies, for which we often need medicines to remedy some disability or illness. Is it okay to have glasses? It is. It's all right. We often modify nature. We do it in many ways. We prune fruit trees. We thin carrots. We clear out trees in order to plant crops. We kill weeds. We put up barriers to exclude wild animals. In all these ways, we are interfering with the course of nature in order to more effectively obey God. This is especially relevant to the question of childbirth because after Adam and Eve sinned, God changed the effects of childbirth that it would have on a woman's body. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, Genesis 3.16. This indicates that childbirth is much more painful and probably much more taxing on a woman's body than it would have been before the fall. So if Adam and Eve had not sinned, and there had been no curse placed upon the woman with regard to childbearing, it is possible that Eve, in her unfallen body, could easily have borne 15, 20 or more children at a rate of one per year, while feeling no pain and suffering, and experiencing no lasting wear and tear on her body. But this was no longer the case 
after the curse was imposed. What is now natural, quote-unquote, will not always be what is best. Related to the idea that we should follow what is natural is the idea that procreation is the main purpose, or perhaps even the only legitimate purpose, for sexual intercourse. That idea is not found in Scripture. Sexual intercourse also gives realization to the one flesh union that is the essence of marriage, Genesis 2.24, Ephesians 5.31, and sexual intimacy in marriage is also given by God for the purpose of mutual pleasure and deep companionship. Read the Song of Solomon, Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Uh, Because procreation is not the only purpose for sexual intercourse, sex within marriage is also a good thing during a woman's non-fertile times each month as well as after she experiences menopause. As for the claim that procreation is the primary purpose of sexual intercourse, it is difficult to know how any criteria could be found that would prove this. If God creates something with multiple purposes, who are we to determine that one purpose is primary and that the others are secondary? In conclusion, these three arguments against birth control are not persuasive. Thoughts on that? Questions? Before we get to point F? Again, your silence means... Oh, Alex? talk briefly about the covenant, the importance of covenant theology and dealing with be fruitful and multiply and that command in Genesis 1. It's coming up later on though. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's a huge one. I get a lot of yeah. proponents of the yeah. theology. Oh, for sure, yeah. I got it yesterday. If we have time, I can't come back. I don't think we're going to have time though, right? Okay. F, how can a couple know how many children to have? If children are a blessing, and it is good to have children, and if birth control is acceptable for at least some periods of time in marriage, then how can a couple decide how many children they should have? Scripture does not give us one answer that fits every married couple. In such a case, we should be gracious and allow people to have a wide variety of different answers because of their different individual callings from God. In general, couples should pray for God's wisdom, which may become increasingly clear to them over several months or years. James 1, 5-6, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If they are comfortable doing so, couples might also seek, decide to seek the counsel of others, through whom God will often give wisdom. The conclusions I've argued for in this lesson imply that a couple's fundamental perspective on this decision should be that children are a blessing from the Lord and that having children is a good thing and pleasing to God. But it is also right for them to count the cost of undertaking such a weighty responsibility. If they deeply desire to have more children, then it is likely that God is calling them to do this. And they should willingly trust them to provide for their needs and enable them to provide for their family. So long as they are not making a reckless, foolish decision that is in essence demanding miraculous provision from God. But if one or both of them is strongly opposed to having more children, and if that opposition is based on a biblical, godly desire, then that opposition should be weighed heavily in the decision-making process. And use of birth control would seem appropriate. It could be appropriate. 
In between these two situations, a couple may feel unsure or ambivalent about having more children. And in that case, they will probably decide not to actively try to prevent pregnancy, to thank God that he often grants us the blessing of children, and then wait to see if God in his sovereignty will provide them with more children. However, there are two errors that should clearly be avoided. Number one is basing a decision on fear. Selfishness. And the unsanctified expectations of a non-Christian culture and thus failing to obey God's calling. Secondly, basing a decision on a reckless, irresponsible sort of faith, quote-unquote, that is not from God, but is only a projection of a person's wrongful motives. The kind of attitude Christians have towards others who have few or many children is also important. In this regard, as of getting married or not getting married, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, and Christians should respect and honor the different decisions that other families have made in this regard. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Right? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Romans 14, 4, also verse 10. Questions about that? Uh, we're going to stop it there then. It's 10 after. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at uh, adoption, IVF, fertility issues.